Well, welcome back to the Limehouse podcast. How are you doing? I hope you've been well. If you've come here for Mark Bowman, you've come to the right place. This is a great chat. Music up the wazoo. That's what I would say with this one. We go Britpop, we go early noughties, we go mid noughties, we go all the way. Enemy, when the enemy ruled the freaking waves. For those of you that remember that, it was a golden time. I, 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 I don't think I'm exaggerating now. I, I remember going to my local, uh, what do you call it, a corner shop and being absolutely raving mad for the enemy, you know. And it got to a point where, um, uh, yeah, you know, you'd subscribe so you'd get it a day early. So you'd just you'd feel like you just had it one up on everybody else. It was amazing. Living in a village... What did that mean? It meant absolutely nothing, right? An hour and a bit from London, so on the train. Good old Chiddingfold, hey? Good old Whitley Station, getting up, get, getting absolutely annihilated in London and then getting running for the last train after having seen, I don't know, the others or uh, the Paddingtons or um, Crikey O'Reilly, even, let's just say it, let's just say it, uh, Art Brute, one of the greatest bands of all time. Uh, and uh, yeah, some amazing bands. The Future Heads. I mean, the Future Heads kind of scared me. They were that good when I first saw them and heard them. But yeah, so Mark and I do, we talk a lot about that. We talk about um, his journey and it is exciting. It's really, really interesting to me because it got pretty dark for him, I think. And we do explore a bit of that because it's hedonistic, isn't it, rock and roll? And you forget that. You forget what, what I love about this conversation is it takes you back to an era really not that long ago at all where journalists used to go out and tour with bands and they used to get messed up and they used to get the best from bands because they'd get used to one another and they'd build a relationship. You don't have that anymore. You don't have um, the written press music. You don't have that anymore. So that for me is a sad thing. That's a sad evolution of where we've gone. Digital's bullshit. I don't like it. I want it in my hand. I want to feel that thing in my hand turning the page. There's just so much more value to it. And we've lost that. Great, isn't it? But, you know, maybe you feel that way. Maybe you don't buy the enemy anymore. Well, you can't buy it anymore. Maybe you don't you know, buy music magazines anymore because you've got too much shit in your life, like kids and what have you, and you haven't got two seconds to spare. But, um, so therefore, this would be a nostalgic piece for you. You know, you could look back and reminisce about the enemy. Hell, Mel- Melody Maker, I've got the last copy of Melody Maker kicking around somewhere. It, it meant a lot. It did. And I'll tell you for why. I was in bands for years and years and years. That's sort of how I, I, I know um, of Mark Beaumont. Because, you know, you, you were trying to get your band in the enemy all the time. It was just this constant thing. Early, for, I don't know, God, 15 years I was trying. And my mate Alex was like... You know, Mark Beaumont, man, we've got to get, we've got to get somewhere, Mark Beaumont, we've got to get written up by this guy, we've got to, got to, got to do it, got to do it. And I was like, who the, who the freaking hell's Mark Beaumont? What's the enemy, for God's sake? I was so young, I did not know. And Alex, like I think I've said on this podcast before, turned me on to so many bands, you know, he'd just rinse his credit card. He didn't have anybody to take, so he's like, Will, we're going to this. I'd be like, what? Okay, fine. He took me down to see the Datsuns and the Rapture down at the Wedgwood Rooms in Portsmouth, which just changed everything for me. It changed everything. It was ground zero. The Datsuns in love, motherfucker from hell. When I was so into ACDC at the time and these guys came along and they were kind of like a garage rock version of ACDC. And it freaking changed everything for me. I got on a completely different plane and I, I, I left all the classic rock behind me for a few years it came back, obviously, um, and, it, and it was just there. 
it, it, it was there. It was the, the white stripes, of course, the strokes, the cribs, as I keep on saying, mentioning all these bands. Um, but then another band that really, really changed everything as well was the Black River Motorcycle Club, which kind of um, pulls back uh, slightly to bring to, to we, we do reference uh, the Black River Motorcycle Club quite a bit in this in this podcast. We, get, we had Peter Hayes on the show. Well, we, I had Peter, uh, Peter on the show and we had a good conversation. So that's a good show for you to go back to and, and listen to. Um, and I think it's quite poignant because we, we, it's a nostalgic chat, this one. So yeah. And, uh, the BRMC were right there at the forefront and yet all these bands I was in, my God, I just want, I want, I want you to know that this, this conversation is coming, this, this, this particular episode is coming from a very, very, uh, deep place in my heart because I struggled like many, many musicians. Maybe you're one of those early noughties through to like, I don't know, maybe five years ago when you were still trying to convince yourself that there was light at the end of the tunnel. Um, and, you know, my band, the, the DIY Cravings, we went over to New York. I was 20 years old, probably 21. We went over, it was a complete flop. The promoter shafted me. I had arranged everything. He turned around, we got to the venue, you know, jet lagged, ready to go. He's like, oh, I'm really sorry, guys. You know, I'd love to put you on, but uh, we don't want to. So I know you've, you've flown this many miles and put thousands of dollars into this effort, but we're going to screw you, okay? And that wasn't particularly nice, but it did leave, lead to one of the most madcap mental 10 days of my life. Absolutely insane. I got hammered left, right and centre. I got um, crazy drunk in Shine, shiny, whatever the hell, music venue. Um, went to the Mars bar, CBGBs. All that's gone now, obviously, because it's great and you have to kill good things, don't you, in New York. I'm bitter about that. But yeah, look, that's what I'm saying. You know, where I'm coming from is is a place of total dedication to the enemy absolute total it was obscenely dedicated i i got to the front of the stage with von bondies back in 2000 and whenever go two three four they were playing at ding uh, dingwalls in um camden it was crazy it was the most amazing gig and there was a stage invasion everything went mental i got up on stage i always used to wear this tweed jacket got up on stage and uh the photographers were snapping away and I bent over and the photographer took the picture, missed my head, but got my back and my big butt cheeks. And that was page two on the NME. So it was a, you open it up and there's a huge great print of the stage invasion at the Von Bondi's gig. And there's my back. There's my bum. There's my tweed jacket. I fucking made it. I couldn't believe it. Even my, my back is famous. My butt is famous. I made it, Ma. I made it. But yeah, you know, the history of that band, the D.O.A. Cravings, is pretty cool. I, I love it because it was total failure, but a great, great fun. And I wonder how many people listening to this that are the worst so dedicated and maybe still are dedicated to making music um, have similar stories. You know, obsession with a magazine, obsession with making it and having a great goddamn hedonistic rock and, rock and roll time of it. Yeah, it was, it was quite a time. I loved it. I could speak all freaking day about this but i won't um here is my conversation with mark like i said if you haven't before 
do check out Peter Hayes' conversation with myself. Uh, there are other conversations I, I had with um, Norman Blake from Teenage Fan Club. But there are so many others as well. But yeah, it's a it's a, a, ver- a very varied podcast, guys. So it, it's it's everything from you know trans rights to climate change to rock and roll to freaking uh, adventures of polar you know exploration antarctica northwest passage you got it all on the limehouse podcast okay you got it covered you really do um but yeah guys and dolls enjoy the show and look i'm sorry this has been a long one but the reason this intro has been long is because it means a lot to me it's an era of my life that meant a lot there was shit tons of turmoil my dad died I needed needed some focus. I got fucked up, and and I got on it. Got a goddamn lot of good stories. Man, we played with some bands. Really did. Rock and roll. Take care. Bye bye now. When like how how young were you when music was like a major impression on you? When it left a mark on you? As long as I can remember, really. I remember, I guess, being about six or seven and having a birthday where I just went to the record shop and bought all the Beatles records, all of them. When you get you get your sort of your birthday money or whatever. Um, yeah. And just immersing myself in that. Uh, and, you know, for, ever since then, really. It was probably, you know, I didn't have a very sort of cool uh, introduction to a lot of music. I mean, my, as most people, I kind of got into music that my parents were into. Yeah. So I kind of had a few years, sort of early teenage, where it was the Beatles, plus it was what my dad was playing in the car, which was like ELO and Supertramp and Genesis. So I've got a really basic, I've got a kind of a, um, a grounding in prog rock. Um, and then I think it was um, when I was about sort of 15 or something like that, um, there, there was a program that was on TV, this is showing my age, but it was a called, called Chart Show. Um, and they used to have... Uh, like they re- used to revolve the, the specific individual theme charts. So like one week it'd be the dance chart, the next week it'd be yeah. the metal chart, and then it would be the... Oh, the, I see, yeah. okay. And um, and I remember watching one week when um, Monkey Gone to Heaven was like top of the yeah. top of the indie chart and just watching this thing. And this was on a Saturday morning at like 11 o'clock. And, yeah. And just watching it going, it was the most evil thing I'd ever seen on TV, especially <laughs> on a Saturday morning. And I just <laughs> yeah. thought... I love this. This is this. I, this is totally. This is totally me. And then uh, and yeah. So Pixies, um, and then I sort of went down to the record shop and sort of picked up Doolittle and and oh, was okay. terrified of it. All of the sort of weird arcane um, symbolism all over it. Right. Um, and so it kind of went from there, really. And then sort of getting to university and diving into the world of the enemy in the early nineties. Yeah. God, wow, okay. That's a lot to like um to go through really because I'd I'd be interested to know what if you have a because I had quite an emotional reaction to um Jimi Hendrix. Like that like like this Live in the West album. It's just Jimmy like playing live on the cover of this vinyl thing and I used and I I remember hearing um Johnny Be Good, you know, that screaming um feedback in it. And it just it really emotionally affected me and like it really blew my tits off so to speak um i mean was it was there you know amongst the elo and um super tramp was there was there a, a specific song that you kind of ignited something 
Um, I mean, you know what? I mean, I, I, at the age of, sort of 13, I mean, I loved all of it. Um, all that stuff. I've still got very sort of, uh, great soft spots for people like Elo and Supertramp. I mean, I, th- I think with, um, as I wrote about fairly recently, um, the, it was more kind of after the facts that it really kicked in um, because, um, you know, my parents broke up when I was about nine. And so um, okay, yeah. I, I didn't see my dad as much. Um, and so I'd sort of, you know, the, the music that I was getting from my dad was kind of less, uh, less in less present really. And so yeah. when I, again, about sort of sixteen, uh, an advert came on the TV for um, like the greatest hits of Supertramp, an autobiography of Supertramp or something. And I didn't yeah. even, I barely remember the, the name of Supertramp, but I knew all these songs, all these sort of snippets of songs. Yeah. Like, oh my god, I love that song, I love that song, I love that song. So kind yeah. of things like that really, sort of really. Um, you know, hit home a bit a bit later on. Um, yeah. So yeah, you know, I, you know, I you know I still love Breakfast in America by Supertramp. I still love right. Um, God. A lot of that ELO stuff I think is fantastic. There's an album called Time by ELO that, yeah. um, that I used to. I remember my my parents had and I used to sort of sneak out of bed and sit on the stairs while they were listening to it in the evenings. Just like, Brilliant. Just like this, this is obviously That's you know cool. completely destroying any 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 conceit that I might be in any way cool. But the older you get, the more you realise that they, what 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 greatness is, and you'd you'd be able to appreciate that more than me. But like I, you know, was it Steve Lamac was playing? I can't remember which album it was in full the other day um, by ELO on, on on six, and I was like, yeah, you they are untouchable. You know, Jeff Lynne is a, is, is a is a you know, has, I don't know, genius, whatever. But I mean. Uh, yeah, ELO, massive influence on me, man. Huge. I think it's, is it Out yeah. of Time, the one within the space that, you know, we've turned to stone on, on it and everything. Yeah, that's so, out, out of the blue, yeah. Um, out of the blue. I mean, that's pretty... Yeah. I mean, I think probably every, everybody's got these kind of, um, you know, these formative records that you get very early on and, you know, they sort of yeah. give you something to look off of. Um, I, mean, that I think in, maybe... That intro. Oh, well, 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 of, uh, turn to stone. Turn to stone. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, um and then you got the, the song twisting bit in the middle um yeah, yeah i think <laughs> <laughs> just the fact that um you know I, I, there was that sort of uh very sort of dad rocky kind of um roots in what i was listening to maybe made the the leap to stuff like pixies and suede when they came along you know yeah. that much more enticing it's just like oh my god look at look how different this is you know it wasn't like yeah. I sort of crept there through through Depeche Mode and The Cure, even though you know that sort of stuff was was around in my in, in uh, what I was listening to here and there. But you know, yeah. the fact it was it was you know it was it was so different from that sort of mainstream glossy stuff. I think yeah. really made me keen on uh, just really interested me in terms of what music could be. Yeah, I mean, there's a bit of the um, Nick Hornby about this really because like uh, you've got the. Um you know your 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 father's influence on you and then the 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 the, um pain of a divorce and 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 as a kid you know leaning on stuff you're always leaning on films or you know um and 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 music and what have you as 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 safety nets um is there any uh, like particular because i think when i went to school when i went to boarding school I, i i retreated within myself and i used all of my dad's music to protect me from like basically a sent you know really intense bullying and what have you did you do you ever do you, do you know what i'm saying when i say that um yeah i mean i can sort of i think um to a degree uh you know musical obsession sort of goes hand in hand with a, a certain amount of sort of outside outside of them um i'm yeah. feeling a little 
that part I'm feeling a little bit different and, and feeling the need to dive into music and some to find some sort of solace in it. Yeah. Um, only something I did uh, over the course of my teenage years. Uh, you know, I, I had a pretty awful time, and you know, music was there. You know, it's, it's how you'd escape. It's how you, where you'd retreat to, really. Yeah. And, and reading uh, classic books. <laughs> yeah. That's what yeah. I did as a teenager. So were you, do I mean, teenager, we, we're talking Smiths. Were, were, were they on your radar and was Morrissey a pin-up? Later. Um, I think it was kind of when I got to university and written, because, you know, I'd heard of the, I'd heard of the enemy and I picked up maybe one uh, copy of it in the 80s. Um, but it wasn't until sort of about 91, 92, when I was at university that um, any of that stuff really came into my honed into view as such. And again, I came I came to it through whatever the enemy was writing at the time. Um, I think I started going out with someone who gave me a tape of all of the, uh, what the, you know, the, the enemy hot bands of the time, which is probably all stuff like Carter USM and, um, you know, senseless God. things and stuff like that. And the wedding present, yeah. you know, I got totally obsessed with the wedding present. I was kind of made a wedding present fan by that girl, I think, because, um, you know, she gave me this tape with, with all these sort of really sort of like miserable songs by the wedding present about being dumped and then she dumped me and so like (laughs) you make a wedding present fan um prepping the ground for you right yeah the um, wedding present did it all did it all for her yeah and then so i think maybe i kind of you know i discovered stuff like the smiths in the wake of discovering things like suede you know and sort of and looking back a little bit um and, and when i got into reading the enemy and became obsessive about reading it you know, you heard, you learn about all that history. That's one of the great things about about the thing. Yeah. It was this great source of of, uh, of musical history that you you find. You know, okay, amongst this huge mass of records in in our price, or whatever, these are the ones to pick up. Yeah, no, that's interesting, isn't it? Because and also like having when you step into the modern world of music um, for the first time and realizing that music isn't just made, wasn't just made in the seventies and eighties. It's, 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 it's being made now. It's, it, mm-hmm. you know, I didn't understand that until, um, I mean, obviously that's ridiculous. So I didn't understand that, but I was probably about 15 until maybe Oasis and, uh, and the Verve and all that jazz came along. Um, I'm probably getting my, my age slightly wrong there, but um, you, you know, when you go, Oh, this is, this is cool, but but I guess what I'm trying to say is like you know when when cool um, isn't a word, it's just you just love the music for what it is. But it also happens to be incredibly current. Was there any band that particularly, like you said, swayed? Is there a band that came along that it wasn't just cool to like them? It just fitted who you were. Um, well, I would say swayed. Um, yeah, you know, once if, if I look at kind of the the pivotal. Uh, musical influences on my life. I mean, it's certainly, you know, Beatles was a, at a very young age and uh, Pixies to kind of turn me on. So, you know, there's, there's this sort of underground world out there that's, that was sort of deep and dark and exciting. And then Suede came along just as I was really getting in, really, deep, really sort of delving into it deeply. And yeah, I mean, completely, you know, I felt as though I was a child of Britpop. I really was. Um, I, you know, I grew my hair, I, I put the girls' blouse on, you know, my... <laughs> So I sort of shimmied across the dance, <laughs> dance floors, sort of whacking my backside. You know, I did all that. Um, Jarvis, and had a fantastic yeah. time and felt like, I, felt like you, it's, I kind of, you know, to a degree, I felt very lucky. Um, I guess there's a lot of people at a lot, a lot of stages in music that feel the same way. But I did kind of feel fairly lucky that this it was just there right in front of me. Just as soon as I got into this stuff, here was a, a world-changingly brilliant band. Um, yeah. 
and and then everything followed on from that as like suddenly you know the whole brit pop thing exploded and i feel like i felt like i was kind of the right place at the right time with it god do you know what if it wasn't for the fact that i'd had like that sort of rock and roll revolution strokes etc etc i'd be so jealous i think that's the last that's another thing you know people could think about thinking about the arctic monkeys or the strokes or um you know people were thinking about that about being being around just as punk broke you know for me it was brit a lot of generations have had that yeah i mean can you talk about because it seems obviously you have a massive love for that era of music um and i i i I would have but i was being bullied at private school and i always had my head up fucking led zeppelin and robert plant's ass which is fine you know it's a snug but it's a nice bud it's it's you know it's got lots of reverb and great drum sound but what about like when you move to like you know, 15, 16 years old and, and you're aware of this great music, or sorry, a bit older than that when you were at uni, but, um, you know, that that raw, like, taste of a music scene, can you re- can you remember that, like, you know, the the, the, the indie clubs and what have you? Oh, yeah. I, um, I mean, the early night, you know, I did, I, this is another thing that I think maybe uh, in terms of sort of indie rock, can only really be be related to how you know what when it really took off in the early noughties, really. But at, at the start of Britpop, when I started sort of going clubbing around um, indie clubs, I mean there was there were hundreds of them. I mean it, it, you you know you go to London, you go to like Feet First or whatever at the Camden Palace as it was now um, now Coco, um, and you'd come out and you'd be handed a ton of leaf a ton of flyers going right here's another one here's another one here's another one here's what they play, and so I was going to indie clubs four or five nights a week um staying out till two or three in the morning every, you know, every single week um just living it absolutely living it and i had i had an incredible time um yeah. just just non-stop sort of uh non-stop dancing because at the same time I, I think it's probably a another sort of stage of life where people are discovering these things i was going to these indie clubs at that time and i didn't know a lot of the songs you know i wasn't particularly familiar with uh you know, uh, whatever might have been from the eighties that they were mm. playing, um, and so and some of the new stuff. So I was I was kind of learning the music at the same time. So after, I think once you've done that for about sort of four or five years, you start going to going to clubs and going, "Well, yeah, okay, well, I know all these songs now." But at the time, the just floor. Floor. Uh, yeah, the, absolutely, I was totally educated on the dance floor. I think a lot of the, um, uh, you know, a lot of my grounding in in terms of being able to write about indie rock for so long came from going out and dancing to it like five nights a week for That's probably about so cool i love it i love it I, I can imagine you i don't know if you maybe you do you lecture at all and i can just be like look the best way to be you know an effective music journalist is to just get out and fucking dance to it obviously not at the moment well maybe not at the moment so much because the old the old covid but um but yeah i mean that that is pretty that's pretty awesome. Yeah. I think I, I can share some I can share some uh, similarity with you there definitely. And um, I think that it also that happened again. I mean, it kind of again as sort of Britpop kind of fell away towards the end of the nineties, the clubs got boring, and and it, it and it was frustrating for me because I'd sort of been literally sort of hammering clubs for so long, and then it, suddenly I turn up at a club and they want me to dance to like Bittersweet Symphony, and they're trying to get me to dance to Paranoid Android, and I'm just like you know. This, you know, this isn't very leap, leap up and down and fun. Um, right. and, and kind of you know, <laughs> reflecting what was going on in music at the time became quite dull until, you know, the strokes came along and, and then those, you know, the Queen's Noise and all that stuff in the noughties, which I, I maybe you were around for. Yeah. Um, and it, yeah. music, they were that exciting again. Um, 
and that was a really exciting time. Uh, but at that time, I was actually running the clubs rather than going and dancing. <laughs> Yeah, clear, clearly we've got I've got to cover a lot of ground here, man. Because I think you know you're someone that um, you know I've admired for a long time, and 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 obviously you know to to reach a level you you have done for sustained it for so long isn't like by accident, and you know and and so for me like saying that you got your education on the dance floor that's that's very cool. Um, but when I suppose the obvious question is, when did you start realizing you know you you could write about the thing that you love dancing to so much? Um, well, again, it was when I started reading the NME. I mean, I'd always been writing. Um, I did. I mean, I'd written about three novels by the time I was out of university, and so it was kind of I was kind Jesus of always. Jesus Christ! Okay. Yeah, I mean, I was sort of you know, like I say, I was kind of I was quite a stay in teenager sort of reading and write reading sort of classic novels and and trying to emulate them badly um so i was always an avid writer and i always knew i wanted to if i could make a living out of it and i'd love to um i did a um I sort of just after university i went I, you know i'd sort of decided i was going to be a journalist and uh went to do a year's Sort of postgrad course in news journalism, so I'm actually I'm a trained news journalist. I mean, this is often comes as a bit of a surprise to anybody that's actually read me, um, but you know, okay, I'm I'm actually trained. Um, but you studied, so, you know, you were studying in the right, roughly the right area, though, which is yeah, know, I was in the right cool. area. And I think basically, as soon as I picked up the enemy and started reading it regularly, I, I kind of saw the fact that, that you know, here's Stephen Wells is going to Texas to interview someone and writing this sort of pretty wild. Um, copy about it. I mean, that's what that's perfect. You know what I mean? It's right. Right. You, you know, not only can I sort of sort of go off on wild flights of fancy and, and, and within the within the enemy at the time. Um, you know, you get to, you get to travel and you get to meet all these all these sort of famous rock stars. So that was. Uh, I mean, that was it. As soon as I sort of saw that, I thought, this is yeah. I, I'll do this. And it took me about two years of of uh, sending reviews into the various papers to to get the work <laughs> so it was, it was a case of just decide okay again i'm kind of lucky at the age of whatever early 20s to decide right actually i know exactly what i want to do it's to work for the enemy and then to go about trying to do that until i did <laughs> and the, the having time on your side it's a wonderful thing i mean like what what can you talk about styles at all and like how if if you've always remained true i mean there's a, a, a core like a, a, a way of you writing like a core within you that comes out onto the page has that always been there or have you had to evolve that i mean obviously when you when you were younger and early 20s trying to make it you you're you're kind of finding out the hard way from rejection right um yeah uh i mean obviously when you start when you first start writing with the intention of it being music journalism you know you, you don't really know what you're doing and it takes a lot of practice to do that sort of thing um and I think that stylistically, it kind of it, it had to evolve. I think initially, what I did was sort of just consume the enemy avidly and, and read every you know read it cover to cover, um, and and get to know all the writers. And they, all the writers in the early nineties had different styles. They all you know you had um, you know it's, uh, someone like Johnny Cigarettes had a very dry wit. You had someone like Stephen Wells who was this sort of Gonzo sort of mad guy, you know asking sort of crazy questions and. Um, you had uh, people like Simon Williams who would throw in lots of jokes about furry animals, and uh, and then you had the serious, serious, more serious writers uh, like John Mulvey and people like that. Um, and so what I did was just devour all of it 
and basically just kind of take bits from everybody. And I kind of, I think I kind of initially just worked on a, on a kind of a, a homogenous sort of enemy style. Um, but over time, you know, the inevitably, you know, as you write more, you, you sort of build in, you know, more of your personality and more of, uh, your sort of individual style comes out of that. That's um, quite a gamble. That's quite a, quite a, a bit of a gambit, isn't it? It's a little bit of a, a gamble because you've putting yourself onto the page in a, in your personality. Um, that's quite brave, isn't it? When you're starting out. I think I just, I just wanted to be one of those personality writers rather than, um, you know, the more sort of straightforward, uh, people that you'd read in there. I just, cause those are the people that I liked reading more, you know, I really yeah. love reading stuff and uh and what swells it swells his stuff and um uh uh who else uh you know people like simon williams sylvia patterson people like that just absolutely yeah. adored it i kind of liked the stuff that made me laugh you know i was very much into the jokes um right and once you start in putting jokes in putting jokes of your own into copy that inevitably turns something into your own voice because you know it's your people's humor it's, it's is very individualistic. You can't really copy someone else's humor necessarily. So I think that kind of a lot more me. But then at the same time, you know, I was a lot a lot angrier on the page than I was in real life. People would meet me and just say, you know what, you're quite nice. You know, people people were quite surprised that I wasn't this sort of you know this angry young angry young man. Um, what do you think drove the 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 anger to come out on the page? Then do you think it is just your love and your passion for what to write? And when a band is getting it wrong and they're aiming yeah it, 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 it is that. i guess it was uh it was that sense of okay this is if, if this if this is something i don't like it, then maybe it should just shouldn't exist and i think that's probably a very unfair way to look at it i think with something you look at the way you look at something when you're in your early 20s maybe um and, and again it was driven by the fact that you know when i read when i read the enemy the stuff that well, you often you really like the stuff that was given with the reviews that were giving nor out of ten um more than the stuff that was more than the reviews that were giving better marks. So I kind of, I, I liked that idea. Um, yeah, I don't know, really. It's kind of weird. I don't, I don't think I particularly had any major desire to change the shape of music, but I think you kind of, if you, uh, when you're going into being a critic, if you could decide to be a critic, you know, sorry, that's my front door going, which is a bit odd. Um, do you mind if I answer go, that? Go for it. Go, go, go for it. Hang on a sec charity people at the door um what was i saying um being pretty i think when you um you know when you decide to that you want to make a living uh being a critic or in the world of, of uh, criticism in general i mean you just kind of kind of you know you, you've got to have the attitude that what you what you think is is the right thing because mm. that's what's going to be down on the page and that's what people are going to read um so yeah uh Sorry, it's uh, <laughs> no, no, I've so, lost my train. Uh, no, it's fine because I wanted to, I wanted to ask you a question um, about like your first few pieces, you know, because I, I used to do a bit of music journalism. I did um, wrote for a magazine on and off. I don't know how long for, um, but you know, um, I I know that it took a while to get to a voice, you know, to 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 have your own voice, a little bit like a stand up comic, right? That whole hundred gigs thing. Um, but can you remember like a, a piece that you you really first settled on? You thought this is this is this is good. Like I'm really proud of this. 
Oh, crikey. Um, like out, outside of, you know, when you're like 13 writing this book or whatever, like like a proper piece that was published where you're like, yeah, this is, I'm really, really proud of this. Um, you know what? It's, it's, it's a difficult thing to try and remember things I've written at all because I've written you know, so, millions and millions and millions of years. And uh, I can't remember what I wrote last week, <laughs> let alone what I wrote in some <laughs> um, I mean, I do remember... The first thing I was, I guess, I was quite proud of is the the thing that got me the job at Enemy was I went because um, I was reviewing stuff for my student paper when I was at doing the um, journalism course, um, and I was uh, they they actually they, they I sent in a review of a band whose name I can't remember uh, from Liverpool who I'd gone to see in Liverpool, um, and I think I, I the line I wrote was something like. Um, you know, his, his, the vocals, this guy had really sort of high falsetto vocals and I was sort of saying that they should really only be audible to dogs. And that was kind of, the, that was the line that got me the job, apparently. <laughs> okay, let's give this guy, let's, guess, let's give this guy a, um, a job. So, um, I mean, I'm quite proud that that one cut through. Um, in terms of the early stuff, I mean, there was, there was so much in the, in the 90s because it, uh, it was all fairly madcap early on. Hmm. Um, I remember what did I do early on? I mean, one of my first covers was one of the one of the best jobs I've ever done. Actually, um, I guess yeah, this, I guess uh, this is something I was quite proud of early on. Um, was when I did um, I did a cover feature with Blur in Australia. I went to Sydney for like five days with Blur, and that was I mean mind blowing for me in sort of in the first few years of doing music journalism because. You know, it's one of my favourite bands, and I'm at the side of the stage, dancing around in Sydney. I mean, it was just Jesus. incredible there at all. Um, and then, uh, uh, you know, we were staying in the hotel, the same hotel as them. And Alex would come back to my room and just put champagne on my room until dawn every day. Um, so almost that was famous, pretty cr- basically. Yeah, huh? almost famous. Yeah, it really was. Um, yeah, and um, yeah, I mean, but I, you know, I couldn't handle it. It was, it was. It, yeah, I guess I wasn't really sort of living up to the um, the rock and roll standards because you know there was one morning when I just couldn't get out of bed and they were they were on a on a boat in the middle of Sydney Harbour waiting for me because they were getting um, they were going to go out into the into the harbour to get a get presented with a with a gold disc or a platinum disc or something in Australia and they had everyone had to wait for me for about two hours whilst whilst someone got me out of bed and got me there so I think I was probably you know I was probably still a bit, a bit of a lightweight for that but. Um, but I remember keep up with that sorry go on go on i remember being quite proud of that piece yeah. um when that came out um and another thing i remember being proud of is uh one of the best um uh i don't know if you remember in the enemy we used to do a thing called pub golf at christmas <laughs> yeah and um well i mean it was always mad it was always always madness and I think Mark Sutherland, Mark Sutherland had done it before me, and then it kind of got handed on to me to be the kind of the host of this, of this thing. And it's right. basically it's sort of it's a nightmare for for, for the, if you're the host of it because you're trying to sort of gather all these all these sort of. I mean, what what the piece was is that you sort of get five or six uh, musicians together and do a pub crawl around Camden. Jesus. And each stop, they've got to do little games, and, and, and you know, it's a pub golf thing, and it's it, it, they get horrendously drunk, and trying to corral them around is a nightmare enough <laughs> without actually trying to get any sort of written piece out of it. But I did the one that um, 
was uh, so we did we did one that was rock versus dance. So there was a team of rock musicians and a team of dance musicians, and the rock team was um, Stuart from Mogwai. I was talking to him about this just recently, and uh, Rick from Ash, and uh, the, another guy uh, from I can't remember, which is really bad of me. Uh, and then the dance team was Aphex Twin, Square Pusher, and um, one of Orbital, Paul from Orbital, I think. Um, and uh, I mean, it was just absolutely insane. I mean, I've never You're seen right. anything like yeah. to the point where, um, you know, by about pub five, Aphex Twin was just so hammered that it was just, I mean, it was literally kind of, uh, there was the, the, the task in this pub was that we were going to supposed to build a house of cards. And he was just like walking across the table and walked, we walked out into the street and stopped the traffic and started climbing up the front of cars. He was just so drunk. So he got carried home on pub six. Uh, <laughs> pub seven square pusher got carried home because he was throwing up everywhere. Um, so it was only one of the dance team actually made it to the end. That was how, how bad that was. I mean, we got into the, uh, we got to the, the penultimate pub, uh, which I think was the, oh, I can't remember, the Dublin Castle. I mean, we got thrown out of the last three or four pubs because everyone was just screaming at the top of their voices. Um, we had, uh, like, whoever the, like, the other guy in the rock team was carrying Stuart from Mogwai around his shoulders, shouting, keep some George in my heart, keep me English. I mean, it literally <laughs> vomit everywhere. It was just crazy. And then the last pub in the good mixer, uh, Stuart from Mogwai sort of stepped up because the, the rock team were losing and Stuart stepped up and just went, you know what, If how many points did I get if I drink a pint of every single shot behind the bar? And they sort of made this this deadly cocktail for him. And oh do not do this at home. Honestly, it's really not a good idea. It was like bubbling and green practically. And he sort of, we stood in the toilet while he tried to down it and that didn't go very well. Vomit um, straight back so that, up. I mean, that was the, the by far, far and away the craziest pub golf thing ever. And I think to get all of that down on paper, even to remember half of it, I think was was probably one of my proudest moments well that that that's that's proper gonzo man because you know the whole that i've been that's been bubbling away in the back of my brain the whole um hunter s thompson thing that you know trying to emulate any of that i mean obviously i don't you know you had a tape recorder around with him the whole time i mean and and obviously Britpop wasn't completely off the hook anyway um lost days i should imagine lost weeks lost months for you though well, i can't remember very much about it yeah <laughs> It's so difficult to remember, like you say, what, what, what were my proudest early features? I mean, I, I you know, I can remember, uh, I mean, where did, what did I do? Where did I go? Um, I've got a, a load of cuttings of, to sort of remind myself. I should probably sort of read through them before I do stuff like this. Just like Dell from Wayne's World 2, man. What's that? <laughs> like Dell from Wayne's World 2. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wild times. I mean, it was it's all it was all a bit of a blur up until about sort of two thousand eleven. Yeah. To be <laughs> like, how did I mean? You know, you're sat there with a nice like shirt on, and you look uh, pretty. You know, like you've got your shit together now. I mean, was there ever a time when you did there was a little went off? It went too far. You came off the rails a bit. Yeah, I mean, um, you know, it's it's one of those things. I guess when you get into a job like mine. Um, especially in at a time when there was a lot more access to bands and things and you would go and spend three or four days with a band on the road, uh, which doesn't really happen so much anymore, if at all. Um, 
and you would there would be after shows every night at every gig and and if you're young and you want to dive into that world it's all it's all there um so yeah i mean you know i was drinking every night probably for about you know 10 15 years or something um and that does take its toll i mean you don't really notice it when you're in your 20s and yeah and just sort of sort of flying by but the more eventually all these sort of things catch up with you yeah um so yeah i'd probably you know sort of about I mean, the noughties were a very sort of odd time for me because I was, uh, you know, I was on star, staff rider at the NME and it was, this was the, my dream job and, and really was a fantastic job to be doing. You know, it was, it was sort of, you know, in LA once a month and just a really exciting time with all these sort of great bands coming through and, you know, really sort of hedonistic time, everyone was going crazy and really, really exciting. Um, the best job at the best time, really. But at the same time, I was going through quite a tough sort of breakup stuff in, in my life and, and going through quite some quite sort of dark um, issues with sort of drink and drugs and stuff. And, and it wasn't yeah. until probably about 2008 uh, that I came through all of that and just sort of just at the time when all that music was kind of, you know, was being brushed on the, brushed away. So it's kind of a weird time, the noughties for me. Um, yeah. In, in sort of, you know, both, both good and bad sort of smashed together at the same time. Well, it's quite interesting you say that, actually. I've, I've, I've spoken with um, uh, Laura Jean Marsh. She, she basically directed um, and starred in a film called Giddy Stratospheres. And, and yeah, she, yeah, I know Laura. Yeah, and, and it's interesting because she um, portrayed drugs in that scene. And because I'm a little innocent chap who wouldn't, you know, maybe smoke occasional joint back in those days, I, I never partook in it. So therefore, my own personal experience is like, well, it didn't happen. And um, I, I like, I really enjoyed the film, but I couldn't associate with that. So obviously with you, that was the case. I mean, the, it, and, 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 and another thing is that I had, when I was coming up to see gigs, right, I was coming up from the Surrey countryside and we had to leave at like 10.30. So if the band wasn't finished by 10.30, you got to go, man, because the last trains. So we never really got a chance to get right, really, really messed up. So, and obviously for you, it's like, party time like after show after after show um they are like that you explaining the the black and white also the light in the day the dark and the light of of that movement of that era um it's funny isn't it like do you is there any nostalgia that breaks through uh and and you can kind of meet the two the light and the the dark equally um well i think you kind of I've come to terms with it a lot, a lot more in terms of looking back at that period for me personally. Yeah. Um, you know, it was, I was, I think I was very lucky to get through it in terms of it, it was the job that kept, kept me going through some pretty dark times for me. So I was, so I kind of, for a long, for a long time, you kind of, you know, I couldn't really enjoy the best job in the world for, for uh, at the time. But now when you look back on it and with a certain amount of nostalgia, I can kind of enjoy it vicariously through, you know, in retrospect, if you like, um, yeah. so I'm kind of a little bit more at one with it. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was it was great fun, and it was um, it was a different sort of experience for me in terms of you know the nineties and Britpop and stuff was all about sort of going to the after shows and yeah. and um, and sort of meeting all these all of all of my heroes and, and being very excited about that. And the noughties were more about kind of running the party a bit more and. Um, you know, I'd started, I started sort of DJing and doing club nights and things. And, and that, so my partying was more from behind DJ, de behind DJ decks and 
okay. you know, sort of kicking off club enemy and things like that, and, and doing club a lot enemy, of that. Mate. Absolutely fantastic. God, Coco was. Did you ever? Did you DJ at Coco in the noughties? Yeah, I mean, I kind of, you know, to, I, I kind of started club enemy in um we I got offered the chance to DJ in the second room at a club called Kill All Hippies, which I think was about <laughs> yeah. three or two thousand four. Yeah. Um uh by uh, a friend of mine who was running the whole thing. And he sort of wanted to say, Okay, let's have the an NME room. And it was a little sort of grotty little room in a in because it used to be in this uh, basically a studio complex. Um yeah. and it was just sort of a party. You didn't I don't think advertised it or anything, people just sort of turned up. Um and that went really well because there was an awful lot of great music to play. And so I sort of got a load of enemy writers to come and DJ with me. And we did, we did the whole night and, uh, and it just kind of took off from there. Someone, someone, obviously someone at the paper got a, got, got wind of this and got the idea of just like, Oh, maybe we could turn this into an actual thing. Um, and yeah, so they, they, uh, they took it to Coco and kind of took it out of my hands really. But for the first, uh, right. uh, the first, uh, probably a year and a bit between, uh, those sort of first early party shows and then when killer hippies went to bagley's we had the second room at bagley's so we kind of kind of kicked off from there and then it went all over the country i mean i don't know if you remember it was mate you know absolutely I mean? of course of course i remember you know me was the biggest um club promoter in the uk for a I few know, years it, it was fucking insane it was totally insane i mean i i remember enemy being like i, I became obsessed with the enemy um uh, not when I was like 14, 15, 16, but when I was uh, 20 to no, not 22, maybe 21 to about 27, 28, you know, and I, I you'd, you'd go out to, you'd, you'd, you'd either, was it, you'd subscribe and you'd get it a day earlier. So, you know, get that. And you'd, you'd, you'd be trawling through it for certain journalists. You'd be trawling through it for certain bands and, and looking for new bands and, you know, the radar section. It was, it's a freaking badge of honor, right? You know, you, I've got, I think I've got enemy stickers on the back of my guitar, you know, they're, they're probably like 20 years old. I mean, not anymore. You know, I mean, I'm not saying the enemy's gone downhill, but it's just, it, it doesn't exist really so much um, in terms of, you know, a physical thing. And, and hopefully it will make a, a comeback of print because like, you know, like vinyl people want the, the physical thing in their hand. But obviously I guess what I'm rambling about here is um, I remember going to my local village shop and picking up enemy and, and, and you'd have like um, these huge bands, but, but they weren't huge. They were, they were huge to a, a certain element of, but you thought the whole world was listening to the Datsuns or whoever. Um, and, fuck i'm rambling so much because i'm just so this is like an era of, of they kind of were to a degree i mean it may not may not have felt it in um you know in the, in the small town where you were but you know these these bands were getting quite big you know i mean i mean the enemy probably in the noughties probably had more power in terms of getting bands into the charts than than it had for many years um right. certainly in the look back to the the the, the 80s or whatever they were writing about all sorts of bands that never you know the idea of getting in the charts most most indie bands when the the, the enemy were writing about in the 80s would get go in at number 23 and drop out the, the following week that was the classic standard thing that would happen that was the way it would work whereas um you know by the noughties i mean we had some clout you know we were getting bands that we would write about would, would be in in the top 20 the following like, a couple of weeks later it was, um, it was amazing so yeah it was quite it was an exciting time it was an exciting time to be kind of at the 
at the centre of it, really, it's a, and feel as though you're actually making a difference and well, that, getting some good thing, music out. Right, you know, you, yeah, exactly. You know, people were listening and then essentially going out and buying. I mean, God, it's it's phenomenal to have that amount of clout. But it's all for a good reason, because all those bands were incredible. I mean, like from 80s Matchbox, Beeline Disaster and, you know, upwards. It's like the, the, there was a, a great range of music, I think, as well. Um, a great crossover, you know, that is it's not often overlooked. It's, I think maybe maybe it's widely celebrated, those 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 bands that were able to cross, cross um, genres a bit. But like for me, it was always about the guitar and what have you. But um, it's so... <laughs> It's mental. I'm getting very excited because I was in a band at the time, I was in several bands at the, around that time as well, always trying to get on the back of the cribs or what have you and, and, and kind of, and, and, and bands like that. But I mean, one, one person that I've interviewed for this show that you may have already met several times is Peter Hayes, Black Room Motorcycle Club. And um, I mean, there's a oh. band that personified cool, right? And they were right at the beginning of that, that naughty's thing. Um do you, you obviously you've seen them a hundred, maybe a few thousand times. I don't know, but like yeah, twenty, yeah, right. Such a fucking band, right? Yeah, I mean, really cool. I just thought of uh, thinking back to um, pieces I was proud of early on because I was struggling to think think of something that was really <laughs> okay. really stuck out for me. And there was there was actually come think of it. I think the second feature I ever did for Enemy was um, with the, the first garbage feature. Um, went out to Wisconsin to Madison, where they're, where they're from, and um, Dutch from the band. When I was there, I mean, it's all kind of lots of sort of spooky. It's a quite a spooky little town, and uh, the photographer Stefan de Batselio got some amazing shots of the band. You know, sort of sepia shots, looking very very spooky. And then Dutch from the band had given gave me this book of um, like uh, Wisconsin ghost stories. And I think I dived into that and sort of you know, dotted sort of bits of that around this sort of piece that was, you know, really I, I was really quite proud of of how that came out in terms of atmospheric writing. Yeah, um, and the, I think I think the band and the and the and the magazine loved it too. So I think that yeah. kind of did my so certainly my future for a few years of the paper. So when you're because like when you are interviewing these people that are you know free as a bird and as you know kooky as all hell and and living the life and just absolute zero responsibility and off handbrake off how do you get into an interview um with people that aren't perhaps all there not like you know because they're wasted or whatever i don't know whatever because you know you can't tell a musician not to drink um, but like when how do you get the the goods i know it's a so we, uh, when someone's absolutely wasted well not yeah or just intimidating because like or or just all of the above you know and you're you're you've got to find their mood and then you've got to pitch this question and i look like what i'm doing with you except you're not hammered and you're not an arsehole um but you know it, it's it's oh, you don't know me very well i'm completely hammered. <laughs> no, no. um how do you, i mean how do you get into it it's um i mean it is a difficult thing because you know, preparing for an interview, just basically, you know, you do all your research and you when you write down this, uh, um, you know, a flowing sort of a range of questions that you hope is going to sort of turn into some sort of story or get or get the best out of them. Um, and it could well be that that's the, the same questions that have been asked 20 times that day. You know, you could walk into a hotel room and, and have someone just sort of churn out exactly the same questions that you, same answers that you read 
that morning in another feature from some, by someone else. You know, I mean, that happens yeah. an awful lot. Um, the trick, I guess, is to is to have done enough research to know when they're sort of when they're leaning into sort of standard answers that they've obviously prepared and and given to many people before and, and steer them away from that so that you get something a bit different. Mm. Um, you just don't want to, you just don't want the, what, what the last person had, basically you just want, you want something that's, that's uh, individual to, to your piece. Um, you know, I mean, and often when they're, if they're completely hammered and out of it, then they're more likely to give you something uh, that's a bit more, a bit more off the wall. Um, so there's no, there's certainly no, uh, there's no deficit. There's no, you know, it's, it can be a benefit. what's um just for just whilst you've said literally like you oh um you know don't 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 you don't want to ask the same question that everybody else has asked but i I guess i kind of have to because um people want to know i want to know but like you know hanging out with people like liam gallagher noel gallagher the you know these goliaths of a kind of a bygone era um what are those people like? What's it? What's it? The <laughs> sitting with those personalities is it like kind of like getting too close to Jupiter or Saturn or something, and their gravity just kind of weighs you down, or is it okay? Not really. Um, I mean, I would, you know, I, I would um, hasten to correct you in that I, you know I don't spend a lot of time with Noel Liam and Noel Gallagher. To be honest with you, then they're, uh, they're not my biggest fans. Um, but uh, when you see the day, maybe. Yeah, but maybe even even back in the day, I was always a blur guy yeah. <laughs> in the big battle. But um, yeah. <laughs> you know, when you've done, when you go in and you do an awful lot of interviews and you meet a lot of people, um, initially, it, when you know, in the early years, it can be quite intimidating and you get a bit nervous and it's it's just like, oh, what if this person doesn't like me? What if this person doesn't? I mean, you know, you kind of care if they like you or not for some reason. Um, yeah, I get that. I've been doing it for a while. Yeah, I mean, over time you start to realise that actually it's more important that you know you, you just hope that they give you something to, that you're going to use, um, or you're going to you're going to be able to make something good out of. That's far more important. Um, and it, and also, you know, ultimately you, you kind of get to do a lot of interviews with people that are heroes to a lot of people, but you aren't. You're not really that bothered about yourself. Right. And so, right. you know, the, the idea of the idea of being in awe of these people, you know, you, you, you do enough of those and you start to think, you know what, I'm kind of sitting next to this guy who, you know, every, a lot of people think they're a complete god, but, you know, for me, it's just another interview, you know. Right. And after a while, you kind of get to the point where they're all a bit like that and you're just talking to people. And that's a, <laughs> that's a good place to be, you know, when you're just talking to people. You know, you're, you can walk into a room with, I don't know, Ronnie Wood. If you can sit down with Ronnie Wood and go, just I'm just talking to a person, then right. that is, it's better for everybody, really. But it's only when you get to those those people that are heroes of yours that now, and certainly now after all this time, you know, it's only, there's only a couple of people that re- really would make me sort of, you know, sort of uh, draw you know draw breath and go, oh my god! And you know, we're talking about sort of Paul McCartney, basically Paul right. McCartney, yeah. the pictures. You know, I've even I've, even, I've done play enough times that I can sit with Brett and just and just be a, just be people, you know. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, there are those few heroes that really take you aback, but generally, um, you know, you, you, you grow out of being overly impressed by anybody. 
Yeah, no. I mean, it's it's interesting you said there, like you know, the Oasis aren't a fan of yours and all that kind of jazz, and and, and particularly because you know you, you you don't you don't hold back um, in 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 your writing your work. So, um, and obviously, I, well, I'm forty now, and you're like forty. I don't know how the fuck old you are, but I mean, I'm fifty. Would you believe? Okay, well, there we go. And it gets to a time where all that kind of stuff becomes a little bit funny. You know, it's like, well, well, not funny, but, you know, you can look back on it and laugh, you know, Oasis versus Blur, you know. It's, I always think of that Father Ted sketch where he's like, are you Oasis or Blur? Oasis or Blur? Blur or Oasis? And he goes, oh, oh, Oasis, Oasis. Oh, right then. Oh, no, Oasis or Blur. That's it, I got the voice from. Anyway, um, and it, did you ever get kind of, too into it a little bit too like um any moments of regret where you've reviewed a band or or whatever that you just did it out of the sheer moment of of and you and you're like oh dear hindsight i I was wrong there perhaps um i mean i don't know really i can't think of anything that i was I, i feel as i was completely wrong about in terms of you know in my mind you know you've got to understand that you know, every, everything that you write is, is prefaced by an invisible, I think. Um, you know, I'm not saying that this is the ultimate be-all and end-all opinion about this thing. I'm just putting my opinion across as entertaining and as informatively as I can, essentially. Um, you know, a lot of people would say, oh, you know, how could you have not liked Kid A by Radiohead? I get that an awful lot. Um, you know, I gave it a bit of a kicking. Um, and, you know, looking looking back at it and listening back, back to it, my, my opinion hasn't changed that much about it, really. You know, I've softened to it a little bit, but, you know, it's still not, you know, it's just, it's just not really for me. Well, um, me neither. I was listening to Six Music with Lamo again, did the whole fucking thing on it. It was anniversary last year. And I, I, I didn't fuck, I, I prefer Hail to the Thief or, or whatever. I'm not a, I'm, I'm not a Kid A fan. And I get that, you know, and, and sometimes I, I, I respect people who stick by there. I mean, you know, in terms of, in terms of the opinions, I think it, I, I can't think of anything where I've really slagged something off and then over time learned to love it a lot. There's certainly been issues, I think, where I've underrated records that I've then come to love. Hmm. Um, I remember, um, but, but only sort of slightly. I remember there was one issue when I was reviewing the singles uh, and we used to, back in the day, we used to have a singles page where one writer would review all the singles that week. And, yeah. And we'd yeah. the single of the week and the second single of the week. And I remember putting um, the Boo Radley's Come On Kids as single of the week and Neutral Milk Hotel's uh, Holland 1945, I think it's called, as the second single of the week. And uh, and I've always kind of regretted that a little bit because I've I've probably barely listened to the the Boo Radley's. I love the Boo Radley's, but I barely I don't think that song's really stood up, stood the test of time. I've, I haven't really listened to it very much since. Whereas I probably listened to Holland 1945 every, every week. In the last sort of twenty years, <laughs> Jesus, it's so, like, absolute genius. No, I can't believe that I didn't right. make that trip the single of the week. So stuff like that, you know, little niggly things like that. Um, you back yourself, then, Mark. Like you, you know, it sounds to me like you know you do like, uh, and I don't mean that in a, you know, I mean that's a great, you know, that's a good thing to have. Like you, zero, not necessarily zero regrets, but like you, you know, you have a studied as soon as you're on writing on the page, something kicks in where you, you, you're just you and there's no regrets. Yeah. I mean, and that's, and that's very much a writing in the moment thing. You know, I mean, my opinion, I was, I was, every time I've done a review, I've had to, I've had a deadline for that review. And so my opinion of that record 
at that time is recorded and there it is. Um, you know, you've, you've got to stick by that. You've got to, you've got to stand by that. That's how I felt about it at the time, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Otherwise, you can't sort of sit around regretting, oh, I shouldn't have said that about this record, I shouldn't have said that about that record, you know. Yeah. It's, my, your opinions might change, but, you know, it's, it's that's what you thought at the time. And in, like, in terms of like front men, front women, um, uh, do you do you feel like we, we touched on Peter Hayes earlier? And I think I was trying to get to a question, but couldn't quite frame it. Um, but, you know, Peter is definitely someone and I wasn't fully aware of it until I spoke with him. And then like a lot of, you know, I got lots of in, interesting feedback from that um, was, it, you know, th there's kind of like um, the, the bygone age of of. of of bands where it's there's a mythology almost that goes comes around with them that they that they, they carry around with them and even when you go to interview them and get in in with the weeds with them they still you come out of that interview going oh i still they still have that power they still have that like magic about them do you, i just don't necessarily feel like there is that at the moment within the front men, the front women of rock and roll. I think there are a few that do have that. I mean, they're probably the reason that you don't feel like that is that online writing doesn't have quite the same. Sorry, <coughs> doesn't have quite the same color as um, as the writing did in the music press, sort of back in the nineties and noughties. I mean, we had, we had a there was we were I think we were allowed a little bit more. Um, uh, you can be a bit more florid. You can go. You can be a bit more colourful. You can paint a character a little bit, sort of, you know, darker or brighter or however, yeah, yeah. however, however you want to do it. Online, people maybe people don't necessarily want that, or the or the platforms don't particularly support that so much anymore. But I think you get a much sort of straighter um, view of a, of an artist now, as as opposed to when we were allowed to be writers really i mean we were trying we were basically we were you know we were writing sort of little enhancing the mythology essentially like you know underlining the the, the mythology because if it's going to work you're going to sell more if you um enhance and go along with a bit of the, the you know the, the 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 magic behind it all i suppose yeah people want I, I mean i always do think that people reading about bands do want to feel as though they're special do you want to feel as yeah. though they're a bit, do you want to feel as though they're outlandish and out of this world you know i mean that's and that's something that we, we would do yeah people want to think they're not like us um a lot of the things you read now are very much you know a lot of them are q a and you know a lot of them are very very straightforward and and it's a lot of the times it's on you know news sites and so they like to be uh, a, a bit more sort of you know straightforward in in terms of portraying somebody um so with, yeah certainly with with the the kind of the the, the pay, I, I guess the the music press that people would buy into um, allowed for more of that, allowed for more sort of florid descriptions mm. of people and putting people in a, a bit more mythology building. Yeah, no, for sure. I mean, it, it is interesting though, and we've only got a few minutes left, I know, but, you know, you look at Enemy and, and Melody Maker, there's a legitimate, <clears throat> um, there's a, a legitimate trip you can make of nostalgia now because those things do not exist in physical form so mm. you can go you have an argument for that they were better times i guess i don't know just because they simply aren't there anymore it's it's not like you're making shit up it's like 
they were really different times. Yeah, they, they were. I mean, the thing is that writing in the in for the when the when the there were sort of physical page music papers, and there are still magazines out there, obviously. But writing for the for those, you know, you could get away with more. You could be angrier. You could be more florid because you were you were writing for a an audience that had bought into what you were doing. You know, um, now. You can't do that so much because you're writing for everybody. I mean, a lot of the stuff that I do goes online, um, as opposed to you know people picking up a magazine and buying it. Yeah. Um, so you, you, your audience is is anybody. So you know you, it's, when you're writing for everybody, you can't really be as you can't assume so much about about the people that are reading it. You can't um, you know when you can't assume that they're going to be okay with you being you know furious about some record or are they you know. <laughs> but, you've got it, it does sort of make you everybody write a bit more um a bit more straight a bit more sort of four out of five and a bit more um uh you know sort of less imaginatively an awful lot yeah um so, you know that's how that things have changed uh, to a certain degree like that and it, it would be nice if uh new generations could be introduced a bit more to the the more colorful and the more um literary writing that that we would we would do um back absolutely in the no, I there's still some out there. I try and do it as much as I can. Um, yeah. But yeah, it's uh, it's certainly. I, I, I look I look back at that writing, and also the fact that there was more space to write. You know, when I started writing, there was five thousand words in a cover feature, so you could really dig into it. You know, you could really, you know, you could write a you could write a piece. You know, with a beginning, a, beginning, a middle, and end bits right. that went off here, that went off there. Um, yeah. Now, even online, even with the sort of unlimited amount of space, the internet pr presumably offers us. People don't want to read huge, great swathes of pages and pages of of articles. So, you know, it's it's all got to be clipped and and to the point. And, you know, but at the same time, there's uh, there is the opportunity to go back and read those things. I mean, part of my job now is going through the archive of the Enemy and the Melody Maker, and we put together for Uncut, we put together uh, magazines of of our archive interviews with Brilliant. you know specific bands. So, Brilliant. You know, we've just done pretenders and stuff like that. So. Uh, so it's great for me. I get to sort of go through the archive and read all these amazing old pieces. Um, oh, well, let so me know if you come across any Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. I'm a massive Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers freak. Well, so. but I, we've done a Tom Petty magazine, but I shall suggest it. And see if not, <laughs> yeah. I mean, we'll put yeah. together all the Tom Petty features so you can read them all in one place. Do it. Any any bands to recommend? Like uh, and that, like you know, we've 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 been nostalgic. So any any modern bands on your horizon? Well, I mean, it's, it, the only one really that's leaping out at me at the minute is Wet Leg. I mean, I know everyone knows about yeah. Wet Leg already. Yeah. Um, yeah. A lot of bands that I really like, um, I really like uh, Dream Nails, uh, are really great. I really like um, uh, Joy Wave. There's a, a, an act from Amsterdam called Someone, who is actually, a, yeah. it's not that, literally the name of this, this woman who does this thing. She's, she's, had a, she's got a couple of great albums out. Okay. Um, don't know, but wet leg. I mean, I'm quite, I'm quite excited about wet leg, and I, I do kind of hope that because one of the issues that we have really at the moment, without sort of paid music press, is that there isn't a, there isn't a, a, a form of consensus. There's no way that, there's nowhere to really sort of look at one place and go right. This is what everyone's talking about. Okay. Um, yeah. But wet leg for the first time in some years, I think, the one band that everyone was talking about all at once, all yeah. of a sudden. Um, yeah. And so I really, you know, hopefully that's a. That might kick something off. Um, I mean, 
you, you, the days of, of A and R and 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 press tr- literally trying to break into a twenty two twenties gig. Do you know what I mean? Like those days gone, <laughs> crazy. Yeah, I mean, you know, a lot has changed. A lot has changed in, in music and in music journalism with the internet. Um, you know, there's a lot of there used to be. You know, it used to be uh, lots of traveling and uh, and lots of time spent with with bands for for nice big sort of juicy print features and and now a lot of it's sort of you know you get you're on the phone a lot you're on certainly over the pandemic you're on zoom yeah, a lot it, yeah. and i think that's definitely going to change back again in a hurry you know a lot of budgets went down with them with streaming you know a lot of the budgets were cut and so uh, labels would be wouldn't be sending journalists around the world so much and yeah um and you do and you lose a certain amount with that you know you, you lose a certain amount of color when you when you're not sat face to face with someone in somewhere somewhere yeah. exotic but um, the thing is, you're having to evolve, right? Because you're only 49. It's not like you, you know, we're, I'm talking to a 75-year-old guy who's <laughs> barely keeping himself together. You know, you've experienced everything. You've come out the other side and, you know, you've you've still got a hell of a lot to do, right? You've still got years ahead. Yeah, well, I hope so. Um, I mean, it's, it's one of those things in a in a business like this when you, like, you know, you do just feel lucky to have been doing it for this long, you know, and, um, there is a certain, I was talking today, I was, I was just doing an interview with Frank Turner, actually, he was saying the same thing that, you know, there's oh, a security uh, once you've done something for, you know, the first sort of five, 10 years of doing something, you're always just like, oh my God, am I still going to get away with this? You still feel as though you, you're kind of, uh, you know, in training and then you could get yeah. sacked at any minute and give it sort of 20 years or so. And then you start thinking, you know what, actually, I think probably I might be on a safe ground here. Yeah. And then you kind of get to my, I'm 27, 28 years in, into the job now. And it's very much sort of like, can I get another 10 years out of this? I, you know, I just don't know. <laughs> things can change. Things can, like, um, platforms can close. And, you know, if, you know, if you're a freelance like me, it's, uh, you just don't know what's going to happen over the coming years. Right? So you just kind of start thinking, I've been very, very lucky to mm-hmm. have got to this point, um, making jokes about the stereophonics, basically, for a living. Um, Brilliant. Did you write um, that article about the night when they when Jeep came out, whatever it was, of what the fucking album it was, and you were like, "Welcome to 1975." Was it you that wrote that? I'm not sure. I mean, I know they don't particularly like me. It was fucking hilarious. Know, over the course of almost 30 years, you're gonna you're gonna <laughs> upset some right. of a fair few people. Um, I don't know if I did that one, um, but uh, but yeah, I mean, you kind of think, okay, <laughs> yeah, if if I get any more time out of it, then that's great. But to get yeah. to this point and and not exactly be um, desperate for you know kind of fairly sort of snowed under with stuff that people want me to do, so I'm I feel very very lucky, you know, very lucky to still, to still perform it. And touch wood, I, I can carry on for uh, the rest of you know as long as the rest of my career, please. Yeah, well, there's, you have a similar um, ethos with Dom Jolly. I spoke to him; he he was just exactly the same, and he was just like bitch got to pay rent i've just got to get on with it and just hope for the best you know that's it's it's you know it made me laugh but um yeah, yeah. you don't really take it for granted really you know you you, you plan you know you, you prepare for the worst and hope for the best and and in my experience that means that you know generally things carry on and, and you know and the worst doesn't happen so far so yeah yeah uh still doing it still out there still enjoying it so can't yeah, say fair yeah, well, look, thank you so much for your time, Mark. It's been cool. And frankly, if this was a pub, um, I, I, oh, man, I'd love to bend your ear for a good three or four hours. Okay, take care. Pleasure.